I wonder if any of you in your dating life can remember that. Ever used the line or perhaps used on you the line, it's not me, or excuse me, I just said that completely backwards. It's not you, it's me. I mean, how many breakups over the years have started with those hated words. It's not you, it's me. Friends, I kid you not, uh, that phrase, it's not you, it's me, is such a common and I assume hated phrase that it has its own Wikipedia page. Okay, I'm serious. Here's what Wiki says. It's not you, it's me, is a popular phrase used in the context of breaking up and is intended to ease the dump ease feeling and the knowledge that it was not their fault, but rather the fault of the dumper. Now listen, uh, I suppose someone might need to break off a relationship because of a, a personal reason that has nothing to do with the other person, but most of the time, friends, it's not you, it's me is a total cop-out, right? It, it is a lame attempt for the one breaking things off not to have to say what the, the issue really is, and it just makes the person receiving the breakup news all the more hurt and confused. Well, friends, I trust that this brief foray into dating lingo uh, hasn't stirred up bad memories for you in any way. I simply bring it up uh, because it's kind of what the Apostle Paul is doing here at the end of Romans 7. He's trying to effect a long-term breakup between Christians and the Old Testament law, at least in our reliance on the law to save and to sanctify us. And, and what Paul essentially ends up saying to the law is this, it's not you, it's me. You're not the problem, I am. So friends, would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, if you didn't make it to church uh, this morning with the Bible, grab that black Bible under your seat, turn it to page 887. Page 887, friends, if you don't own a Bible, well, the good news is we have Bibles in the office for you to take this morning, or you could take that one underneath your seat. We would love for you to go home with the Bible even this morning. Page 887. Let me just give you a fair warning. We are going to be in the Bible a lot this morning. You're going to need to be looking at the text. And so it's one of the reasons I always encourage you to, to use a physical Bible rather than just a phone. It's not sinful, obviously, to use a phone or a tablet, but I just think you can see more of the Scripture at one time when you have a Bible. So I would encourage you each Sunday to bring your, bring your Bible, open it up. This morning we're in Romans chapter 7. And so each Sunday, I try to give you a running start uh, in, into the sermon text of the morning by reminding you of what's come before it, right? It's kind of like looking at the map uh, before starting out on a trip. Uh, a huge key to understanding any biblical text is to know its context. And that's especially true, I think, in the book of Romans, because of the way Paul kind of stitches together a sustained argument throughout his letter to the Roman churches. Well, friends, I think remembering the context is perhaps even extra important today as we approach the end of Romans 7, a passage that many consider to be the most challenging passage to understand in the entire Bible. Friends, remember that Paul's message from the beginning of the letter to the Romans has been that, that God's salvation is not revealed through the law of Moses, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and specifically for those who embrace this good news by bowing their hearts to King Jesus and relying on him to save them. 
Time and time again throughout Romans, Paul shows us that, that salvation is not a do-it-yourself project that we pull off through our own works, our own morality. Far from it. Instead, salvation is a rescue mission by God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's essentially Paul's message throughout the first five chapters of Romans. But then as you get into chapters six to eight, Paul pivots a bit to deal with a very specific objection about the gospel of grace that the Jews would have lobbed back at Paul and other believers. And that, that objection went something like this. Okay, Paul, you say that we're, that we're not saved by keeping the law of Moses, but through God's mercy in Christ that the law simply kind of increases the amount that we sin, well then, we might as well keep on sinning so that God's grace might abound, right? More sin, more grace, more glory to God. The bad logic goes. Well, Paul just blows up that argument in chapter 6, didn't he? By showing us how the gospel applies to real life. Paul says God's grace isn't freedom to sin however you want. It's power not to sin. The reason that's the case is that every single person who's embraced Jesus by faith is actually united spiritually and savingly to him. So so that when Christ died for our sins and canceled its penalty over us, sin lost its grip, its power on our lives so that we died to our sin. And when Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, well, it's like we walked out of the tomb with him to live a new transformed life by the power of his spirit. In fact, Paul says that that in Christ, we belong to an entirely new master. Those who have been freed from their sin are no longer under the law, but under grace, which of course implies something about the converse, that to be under the law is still to be enslaved to sin's dominating power. Of course, as we talked about last week, that idea would have shocked the senses of the Jews who thought that living under the law was the only way to salvation and the only way to please God. So if Paul thinks that living under the law shackles us to our sin, well, then the mindset is he must then believe that the law is the source of evil, which of course is just a step away from blasphemy because it's God's law and God is good. And so Paul takes the first 12 verses of chapter 7 to knock down that idea, to swat it away. No, 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 Paul says. What what I'm saying is that when a person comes to faith in Christ, their relationship with the law radically changes. All the law can do is to condemn you for your law-breaking. But along came Jesus Christ, who lived under the law without sin and died for us lawbreakers. And all all who belong to him are not bound to the law anymore. The law has no claim on you to condemn you because Christ Jesus was condemned for you and now you live in him. Beyond that, the law was not the problem in the first place. Sin's the problem. Our sin nature is so devious and evil that it weaponizes God's good law for its wicked purposes. It uses the law, sin does, as kind of a, a base of operations in our hearts to advance more sin. It's not the law's fault, it's sin's fault. The law was intended to bring about life, but it brought us death because of the power of our sin within us. So Paul concludes in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now friends, I know that was a long on-ramp to the passage this morning, but if we don't understand 
Romans 7, 13 to 25, in the flow of Paul's argument, friends, we run the risk of missing it and thinking that it's saying something that it's not in fact saying. So, so now that we've kind of waded back into the stream of Paul's argument, let's turn our attention to Romans 7, verse 13, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Oh, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I, re- I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I I find it to be a law that when I come to do right, Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Now, friends, right from the jump in verse 13, it is not hard to see what Paul is doing. He is yet again fending off a similar objection to what he fended off in verses 1 to 12. Back in verse 11, Paul said that what sin does is, is seize the opportunity through the law to kill people spiritually, right? Remember my dragon illustration from last week? It's like the, the commandment comes and wakes up the dragon of our sin so that instead of the, the commandment setting us free, what happens is that the dragon rises up, seizes the opportunity, and kills us. So now in verse 13, Paul is doubling down on what he's Said, you know, everything he said so far in chapter seven, did that which is good, aka the law of Moses, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, no way. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, Paul is saying, Listen, guys, it is not the law that kills. It's sin that kills. The sin in each one of our hearts is so dark and twisted that it, that it takes God's good law and uses it for sinister purposes in us. Our sinful nature causes us to want to break God's law instead of obey it. And so what the law ends up doing is the law ends up shining this bright spotlight into the dark cavern of our hearts that just reveals how wicked and warped our sin really is. Sin loves to cover its tracks, right? But the law exposes it for what it really is. 
In our sin, we rebel against God's law instead of submitting to it. And the result is that the law condemns us to eternal death and separation from God. That's what Paul says in verse 13. Now, friends, the rest of chapter 7, the rest of chapter 7 is basically Paul saying something like this. Let me show you, let me show you what the spotlight of the law reveals about me. Let me show you just how sinful I really am. And so instead of kind of pointing that spotlight outward at the Jews, Paul shines it inwardly at himself, right? He doesn't say, well, look what a a big mess you are, Jews. No, he shines it at his own heart and says, look at what a mess I am. It's me. I'm the problem. Okay? Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of Romans 7, 13 to 25. Slavery to sin brings defeat in despair that only Jesus can deliver me from. Chose that first-person pronoun very intentionally since Paul is giving his testimony, the I, all throughout that passage we just read. Slavery to sin, our bondage to sin, brings defeat and despair that only Jesus can deliver me from. Two points this morning, just kind of divide up the main idea. Number one, defeated and despairing in sin. Defeated and despairing in sin. And number two, delivered by Jesus Christ. Defeated and despairing, delivered by Jesus. Friends, I suspect this sermon is going to feel a little more heady uh, than some of my sermons do. We're going to take a deep dive in trying to understand what Paul is talking about here in Romans 7. But let me encourage you, it's good that we do that together this morning. We want to know, don't we, what the Bible says. That's our job and our joy as Christians, to know God through his word. And so, you know, what's going to fuel your Christian life this week is not sermons like three keys to a better prayer life or five tips to a healthier marriage. What's going to fuel you toward godliness is knowing the Bible well and applying it to your life. But beloved, I pray that more than just understanding a difficult passage today, God's word might convince you of the utter hopelessness and futility of living apart from Christ and that you would rejoice all the more in Jesus' saving work. Number one, defeated and despairing in sin. Again, friends, everything in verses 14 to 23 support what Paul said in verse 13. It's not the law that kills. It's sin that kills. But the law does spotlight just how sinful my sin is. Sin used God's good law to bring about my death as I transgressed the law. So immediately, Paul just starts giving his personal testimony about the depth of his sin. Let me explain to you, Paul says, how the law brought about my death. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. That is, it's from the Spirit of God. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul says the law is spiritual because it's from God. I'm not spiritual. I'm fleshly, which in this context means more than just I'm a human being. Clearly, Paul is talking about his sinful flesh that's naturally opposed to God. He makes that clear in verse 14 by adding that he is what? Sold under sin. 
Friends, I preached a whole sermon on that topic a couple weeks ago from chapter 6. To be sold under sin is to be under its enslaving power. It's to have sin as our master. So, friends, how in the world could Paul, a believer, right? A believer in Jesus who has been set free from his sin by the power of Jesus say that he's of the flesh and sold under sin. I mean, he's writing in present tense verbs, right? He doesn't say, I was of the flesh, sold under sin. He says, I am. I am under the flesh, sold under sin. So, friends, just in verse 14 alone, we're starting to get this snippet, right, of the theological riddle that has stumped Christians and theologians all throughout the ages. Who in the world is this I that Paul is talking about? Friends, I probably read, I don't know, five commentaries on Romans 7 this week, and there were like four different opinions about what Paul is talking about here. Is he talking about his Christian experience? Is he talking about his pre-Christian experience or some sort of weird hybrid of the two? It sure seems at times in verses 14 to 23, like Paul is describing the inner conflict with sin that he experiences after the Holy Spirit gave him spiritual life, his Christian experience. After all, not only does Paul speak in the present tense as if what he's saying is true of him right now, all throughout the passage, he talks about having the desire to do what is good. In verses 15 to 16, he speaks of not being able to do what he wants to do. See that? Which presumably means that he wants to obey God, but can't. Same thing in verses 18 to 19. In verse 21, Paul says that he has the desire to do what is good, but can't carry it out. Instead, he just finds himself keeping doing the evil that he doesn't really want to do. Cap it all off in verse 22, Paul goes so far to say that he delights in God's law in his inner being. That sounds an awful lot like a Christian is talking, doesn't it? Right? Those who have the spirit are made new. They now delight in God's word. So what do you think? What do you think? Is Paul talking about the spiritual turmoil that he has as a new man that he's experiencing as he wrestles with the power of the old man in his life? It's almost like the old man and the new man exist together in the same Christian person. That's just this constant battle between the old and the new. Is that what's going on here? Let's take a poll. Let's take a poll. How many of you think that Paul in Romans 7 is talking about his Christian experience? Raise your hand. Okay, maybe maybe half. Let's see. How many of you think he's talking about his pre-Christian experience? Raise your hand. Okay, by far the minority, okay? By far the minority. How many of you have no clue or are just too scared to raise your hand? Okay, all right. I'm gonna tell you what I think is going on here. But before I do, isn't it encouraging that the most hotly debated passage among Christians throughout the ages is about whether Paul is voicing his testimony in the present or in the past? right? The most contested passage among Christians isn't about the virgin birth. It's not about the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus. It's not about his bodily resurrection from the tomb or anything that is essential to your eternal salvation. That is not what's hotly debated among Christians, right? 
Instead, the passage that has given Christians the most trouble is the nuanced perspective of Paul's testimony here in Romans 7, whether he's speaking as a Christian or a non-Christian. And friends, I just want to say that that fact gives me a ton of confidence about the authority and sufficiency of God's word as we approach it each and every week here at Redeeming Grace Church. So who is this I in Paul's testimony? Is it regenerate Paul talking or Paul talking as if he's unregenerate? Should we view these verses through the lens of a a believer's experience or through the, the lens of an unbeliever's experience? Friends, I think what Paul is doing in this section is voicing the defeat and despair that he experienced as an unbeliever before Christ saved him. There are theological titans among us who believe otherwise, both living and dead. And if it would help you, shoot me an email, and I'd be happy to point you to the best resources that make a, a compelling case for that Paul is talking about his Christian experience. There are some compelling arguments out there, but friends, I'm just not persuaded they're right. I believe that Paul's testimony is from the perspective of his life before Christ. Okay, so what I'm going to do over the next few minutes, I'm going to give you some reasons, okay? Some reasons from the text that I believe that Paul is voicing his non-Christian testimony, okay? Hope you'll open your mind and your heart since I'm working from the minority here, okay? Number one, first, notice how Paul repeatedly connects himself with the flesh, with the flesh. We've already seen that in verse 14, but he also does so in verse 18 and in verse 25. So so some have said, okay, well, Paul's just talking about, uh, you know, that he's in his human flesh, which is just his body, which is waiting redemption when Jesus returns, a la the end of Romans 8. That's what he's talking about there. But friends, given what Paul just wrote about the flesh in verse 5 of chapter 7, it seems obvious to me that he's talking about something more than just his human flesh. Look at verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So clearly, Paul is talking about our life before Christ there. When we lived in the flesh, our sin dominated us and it led us into spiritual death. It seems unlikely that Paul would all of a sudden switch what he means by the flesh for the rest of Romans 7. In fact, I think there's a really good case to be made that Romans 7, 5, and 6 kind of serve as the headline for the rest of Romans 7 and Romans 8. Look at the text with me to see it, okay? Romans 7, 5 is the headline for the rest of Romans 7. In verses 7 to 25, Paul vividly describes life in the flesh dominated by sin. Okay? Romans 7, 6, which talks about our freedom from the law and our serving in the Spirit, is like the headline verse or the thesis statement for chapter 8. In fact, you don't find any more explicit references to the Holy Spirit in the rest of Romans 7. But all of a sudden, when you land in chapter 8, boom, Paul explodes into thanksgiving that we're no longer captive to the law, no more condemnation. It's all about living in the Spirit. We've been set free by the Spirit of life. That's what chapter 8 is all about. Again, Romans 7, 5 headlines the rest of Romans 7, about old life in the flesh, 
Romans 7, 6 headlines Romans 8 about our new life in the Spirit. Okay? That's reason number one. Reason number two that I, I, I think Paul has given his pre-Christian testimony. If Paul is describing his Christian experience, it would undercut his entire argument thus far in Romans 6 and 7. And it would be out of step with what he says about his Christian experience in chapter 8 as well. So for instance, in Romans 6, 14, get your head in the text. In Romans 6, 14, Paul said that in Christ, we're no longer under sin's dominion. In chapter 6, verse 18, chapter 6, verse 22, he said we've been set free from sin and now have become slaves to God. We're under a new master with a new regime of righteousness that controls our life. So friends, it would just simply make no sense if Paul were to refer to his status as a Christian in chapter 7 in a totally opposite way as if he's locked back in the chains of his sin. Look again at verse 14 of chapter 7. Paul writes that he is what? Sold under sin. In verse 23, Paul cries out in despair that although he delights in God's law, he sees another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive, captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, he pictures himself imprisoned in sin. And yet, when he gets to chapter 8 and verse 2, what does he say? He says, there's no more condemnation and I have been set free. We have been set free by the Spirit of God through the work of Christ. So, so friends, if Paul is describing his Christian experience in chapter 7, he, I think, would be laughably inconsistent and confusing with how he describes the Christian life in chapter 6 and chapter 8, what comes before and what comes after. Context is really important. Number three, the third reason I believe Paul is referencing his pre-Christian experience. Friends, what Paul depicts in Romans 7, 13 to 23, is not just a struggle with sin, but total defeat by it. See that? It's not merely that Paul describes the, the smoke of battle rising from his sword as he fights the good fight of faith. He speaks despairingly about his total inability to keep the law. Look again at verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Again, same point as last week. The law isn't the problem. My sin is. So, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, now Paul's not saying that he isn't responsible for his actions. No, he, he's picturing his indwelling sin like a like a power that rules over him from within. Slavery to sin is, is not like serving a power outside of us, is it? It's serving something that's resident within us by our very nature as sons and daughters of Adam. Paul continues in verse 18. For I know that nothing good, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Again describing total inability, total defeat. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 
Beloved, I think this is a far more negative view of the Christian life than what Paul describes in chapter 6, chapter 8, or what he describes the Christian life to be in other letters that he wrote. You say, well, John, are you saying then that, that, that Christians don't struggle with sin? Is that what Paul was saying? No, I'm not saying that at all. Paul's not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that this passage, Romans 7, 13 to 25, does not describe your struggle with sin. You want proof that Paul understands a Christian struggle with sin, all you got to do is go back to chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul exhorts believers, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Like, why would Paul have said that unless there is a strong temptation in our lives to grant sin a reign it really doesn't have a right to any longer, right? Clearly, Paul understands the allure of sin and temptation. Because I think that one reason that, that, that many Christians throughout church history see their present experience reflected in Romans 7 is because of how deeply we do feel our struggle with sin. It, it feels like Paul is speaking my language here, right? I'm sure each one of us this morning could give a personal testimony of times this last week where we did something we regret that we didn't want to do. In your right mind, right? <laughs> when you have your spiritual wits about you, you want as a Christian to pursue holiness. But your sin is deceitful and it tricks you, right? Into thinking that the joys of sin are better than the joys that we have in Christ. Or maybe it's the opposite. You really wanted to do something that was, that was good and right but you end up failing to do it. So you think, aha, aha, Paul is talking about me. Beloved, I don't think you want Paul to be talking about you here, is what I'm saying. Because what Paul describes here is not camaraderie with you as a fellow struggler, but utter defeat and despair. He says, I have the desire. I've got no ability to carry it out. Beloved, that is not the outcome of those whose sins have been defeated at the cross. Just not. Even though you as a Christian still wrestle with indwelling sin, Christ Jesus on the cross has purchased your sanctification just as much as he's purchased your justification and your glorification. God has given you the resources by the word and through his spirit to grow in grace and godliness, to put your sin to death and to live for Jesus each and every day. You are a new creation in Christ. All right, number four. The fourth reason I think Paul is talking about his life before Christ is that he talks about struggling to obey the law, which is clearly the law of Moses. But friends, both in Romans and in Galatians and elsewhere, Paul makes it very clear that as new covenant Christians, we're no longer under the old covenant of the law because Jesus has fulfilled the entire thing. The law reached its final destination in Christ Jesus. Its commands and its regulations no longer bind us. So friends, feel free to go out this afternoon and eat all the bacon and all the shrimp that you want to eat, as long as you're not gluttonous, amen, right? We're no longer under the Jewish food regulations, for example. Rather, the law that Christians are under is not the law of Moses, but what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 9, 21 and Galatians 6, 2, we're under the law of Christ. 
the law of Christ. In other words, we respond by grace to Christ's demands revealed in the Gospels and the Apostles' instruction in the rest of the New Testament, right? All of which are fulfilled as we love God and we love others. The law of Christ, the law of love. You say, well, John, then, then why is Paul speaking? If what you're saying is true, why is he speaking in the present tense as if what he's describing is true of him right now? Well, friends, I think Paul is just giving his pre-Christian testimony in a vivid way. I think it's as simple as that. I mean, I entitled the sermon, It's Complicated. It, it, it is, but I don't think this point is complicated. I think Paul is just talking in a way about his past pre-Christian life that makes his testimony come alive as if it were true right now. And Paul's also giving his testimony in a way that shows he's in solidarity with his fellow Israelites. He knows their struggle. He understands the turmoil of trying to keep God's law and not being able to do it with one's own natural resources. So if you remember from last week's sermon, Paul's kind of already done this type of thing. Look at chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to read it. Just let your eyes scan over it. Paul describes his relationship to the law in verses 9 and 10 in a way that sounds a lot like he's talking about Adam before God's command in the garden and Israel before they received the law at Sinai, right? What I said that last week was that Paul is simply identifying himself with every single human being, but one, but Christ. This is the normal human experience when we encounter God's law. We simply have no ability to obey it on our own. Friends, that's what I think he's doing here at the end of chapter seven. Paul is identifying himself with all unbelieving Israelites who try to live under the law without faith in God's promises through Christ. He's basically saying, believe me, I get the struggle. Friends, remember, Paul wasn't just a Jew, was he? He was a Pharisee in his pre-Christ life. He was a scrupulous, zealous adherent of the Mosaic law. Friends, Paul did not persecute Christians because he wanted to dishonor God. He persecuted Christians before he came to Christ because he thought that was the best way to honor God. He was zealous in his striving to keep the law of Moses. And yet, Paul found all of his law-keeping efforts to add up to just this one huge pile of garbage. He wrote in Philippians 3, 7 about his law-keeping, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having, listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, Paul says, oh, the law did not bring me life. It brought me death because I couldn't keep it even though I wanted to. Christ Jesus is so much better. He kept the law for me. He died for my law breaking And now I live by faith in Christ. Friends, Paul was as religious as they come. Paul went to the best theological school. He crossed every 
T and dotted every I in Judaism. And yet even he failed to keep God's law perfectly. As Paul looked back on his life before Christ, he realized what a miserable failure he was. No matter how hard he tried, he simply couldn't keep the law like he wanted to. He realized that in, in God's eyes, the law is a unity. So to break one command of the law is to break the whole thing. What's more, Paul realized now that what God is after, what God is after is, is far more than external conformity to rules and regulations. God demands our exclusive, loyal love every moment of every day of our lives. He expects us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves every moment of every day of our entire life. Who sitting here this morning can say that you have done that? No. Paul understood that even his most pious moments as a devout Jew fell far short of God's standard. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Friends, I think verse 22 is probably the strongest argument if for you if you think that Paul is describing his experience as a Christian. That even though he delights in God's law and his inner being, he experiences something that's competing against him, warring against him, making him captive to the law of sin. So, so listen, I grant that delighting in God's law and the inner being sounds something a lot like what a Christian would say. But in light of all the other evidence that we've looked at, what I think Paul is doing is vocalizing what many unbelieving Jews in his day would have vocalized, would have professed. The Jews delighted in the law. In fact, when we get to chapter 10, Paul is going to say this about his fellow Israelites without Christ. Chapter 10, verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Of course, there were and are Jews who only paid lip service to the law while all along despising it. But as Paul reflects on his own experience, friends, he's focusing on himself and all his fellow pious Jews, the ones who take religion seriously, the ones who seek to do what the law requires. Paul says, that was me. And yet it wasn't enough. At every turn, my sin took me captive. It was like, you know, every time I tried to do right and obey the law, it was like, you know, sin was lying close at hand, crouching in the weeds like a tiger, ready to spring upon me when I least expected it. Friends, I think Paul's testimony in these verses has a special relevance for those of you who consider yourself religious. Those of you who are not depending upon Jesus alone to save you, but yet you consider yourself religious, consider yourself especially pious, especially morally upstanding, I wonder if you can relate to Paul, if you're honest. You work so dang hard to keep the rules, to observe the sacraments, to say your prayers, to do good to the poor, to never miss a service. And yet at the same time, 
you recognize in yourself a deep-seated darkness in your soul that is unrelenting. No amount of rule-keeping and religious observance can bring light that chases out that darkness no matter how hard you try. No matter how hard you try to fill yourself up with doing good stuff, you always turn out empty at the end. It doesn't satisfy, nor can you ever meet this high bar that your religion or your, that you set for yourself, your own kind of way of looking at things. You can never jump high enough to, to reach the bar. And even if you do occasionally happen to meet it, you do enough stuff that you know you shouldn't do that it feels like it just cancels out all the good stuff that you do. You desperately want to attain salvation, but it just feels like you're walking through quicksand as you try to get there. It feels like the walls of judgment are always pressing in on you, closing in around you, because you could just never do enough good to push back the walls. Friends, that emptiness, that desperation is precisely what Paul is describing here to the point that he cries out in verse 24, in the voice of his former man, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't deliver myself into eternal life through my law keeping. Then where in the world is my deliverance going to come from? Of course, that leads us straight into the second point. The climax of Paul's testimony. Paul says, without Christ, and under the law, I was defeated and despairing, but now I have been delivered by Christ Jesus, delivered by Jesus Christ. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, your only hope this morning is not to try harder. It's not to do more. It's not to cry tears of regret and vow to do better next time. The only hope that you have is not to run toward more religion, but to run into the wide open arms of Jesus Christ. God's demand for entering salvation, friend, is not pretty good obedience. You realize that, right? That's not God's standard, pretty good obedience. It's not good works outweighing your bad works like the scale of eternity. It's got to be on the right side. God's standard is 100% flawless obedience. Because God's standard is in line with his own perfection and his own holiness. God created you to image him. Adam was made in God's likeness. He reflected in the beginning God's moral beauty perfectly. That is until the commandment came along and Adam rebelled and died. Adam wanted to be king, not God. And his spiritual DNA is inside each one of us. There are none righteous, not even one, Paul wrote earlier in Romans. What we need is not morality. What we need is a new and better Adam to obey for us. Friends, this Perfect obedience is embodied in Jesus Christ alone. For every human being born in Adam, for every single one of us, the laws claim on every single human being that's ever lived, condemn them, 
and consign them to hell, but not for Jesus. Jesus was fully God, but he was also the perfect son of man. Not once did Jesus break God's holy law. Not once did Jesus fail to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not once did he waver in loving his neighbor as himself. The law's claim on King Jesus was not to condemn him for death, but to vindicate him for life. And yet, in what can only be explained in terms of incomparable love, Jesus chose to stand in our place and let the law's condemning claim on us fall on him. On the cross, he died the eternal death that we deserve. He absorbed the full onslaught of God's holy wrath so that through faith in him, you and I might experience none of it. And he rose from the dead on the third day, proving that the law's demands had been paid in full. Friends, there, <laughs> there has only been one time. The words, it's not you, it's me, is good news. And that's when Jesus speaks it to you about your relationship with him <laughs> and your standing before God. It's not you that earns it. It's me. It's not you that qualifies yourself for eternal life. It's me. Now come to me. Come to me and take from, from my hand by faith all that I have won for you. And you can do that today. You can do that even in this moment. To stop striving against the wind, trying to earn your way to God, and instead to humbly realize that in Christ, because you couldn't get to God, God came to you. Now he's calling you to turn from your self-righteousness, turn from your pride, and to trust in him, to take salvation from his good hand. Christian brothers and sisters, church family, I think what Paul does in this passage is model the type of reflection and thanksgiving that we ought to have about our life before Christ. There's a sense in which reflecting on our life before Jesus ought to simultaneously bring up a sense of shame while catapulting us into praise, right? Shame at our high-handed sin against God. Shame at our futile attempts to earn our own righteousness. And yet at the very same time, feeling in our spiritual, that we, the very same time that we feel in our spiritual bones, our wretchedness, to use Paul's word, we rejoice that we have been delivered from all of it that Jesus bore our guilt, and so he took our shame. We give thanks to God because for no other reason than that fathomless well of love that we sang about earlier, that well of sovereign grace that has no bottom, he chose to rescue us and to bring us to himself. We now belong to him. Beloved, do you know why we aim to fill our worship services here at Redeeming Grace Church, each and every Sunday, while we aim to fill these services with the gospel of Jesus week after week after week. You know why I pray there's never a gospelless sermon that's preached from this pulpit? Because of how prone we are to forget what Jesus has done. 
Because of how easily we move past the miracle of grace and start trying to perform on our own, thinking that we have it all together. Because of how quick we are to, to suddenly think things like this. Yeah, salvation is by grace. Oh, but I'm sure I was an attractive target for it, right? God's sure look, lucky to have me on his team. Beloved, what you and I need are the regular reminders of what we once were, but now no longer are. Everything wrong about us was within us. Everything wrong about us was from within. Everything good has come from without. It's all because of Jesus' blood and his righteousness and his spirit that now resides within us to change us and mold us into the image of his son. I want to close this morning with a hymn from Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts, the 18th century British pastor and hymn writer. Listen to these words and we'll close. How sad our state by nature is. Our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. But there's a voice of sovereign grace. Sounds from the sacred word. O oh, ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. My soul obeys the almighty call and runs to this relief. I would believe thy promise, Lord. Oh, help my unbelief. To the dear fountain of thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. Here let me wash my spotted soul from crimes of deepest dye. Stretch out thine arm, victorious king. My reigning sins rebuke. Drive the old dragon from his seat with all his hellish crew. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. Be thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we are not what we once were. Father, in your mercy, you have rescued us and you have transformed us by your grace. Oh, Father, each one of us can cry out of our own resources and by ourselves. Oh, wretched man. Oh, wretched woman that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Oh, Lord, but we praise you that each one of us, because of your mercy, as we Trust in you as we trust in the Lord Jesus to save us and confidently cry out, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, Father, we delight in you this morning. We, we worship you this morning because it is well with our soul. The worst thing that could possibly be laid on us has been taken from us. The greatest burden we could ever bear has been borne by Jesus on the cross. You have taken our sin and our guilt away. And so we cry out to you by faith and we look forward to the day when you will return, when you'll split the sky and come again and make all things new. Oh Lord Jesus, help us to live for you, we pray, in light of this reality. In Jesus' name, amen.